Good evening. My name is Chandler, and if you have your Bibles, open up to Acts. We're going to start off in Acts 4, 32 through 35. Now, the full number of those who believed one of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had needed. Acts 5, 12 through 16. signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles, and they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. Now Acts 6. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by Helen, Hellenist arose around rose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from, from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we all will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word, and what they, what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Let me pray for us uh, before we get into this. Lord Jesus, we delight to bring our weakness and our impotence to you. What can we accomplish? What can I do with silly little words? With the magnitude of what is in our hearts and in our minds and in our homes and back home that we're dealing with and that we're facing For some of us, it's things we can explain. It's sadness, it's pain. For some of us, it's numbness and confusion. For some of us, it's hardness of heart and going through the motions. What we need is far beyond our ability to do it. We need softness of heart. We need eyes, we need ears, we need life. And so we start before we look at your word and say, speak, Lord Jesus. Let your word have the effect on us that it did in these accounts. We need it, and we look to you as our only hope. We cry out to you, knowing that you love to do these very things. So do it tonight. Would you be pleased in your mercy? We don't deserve it, but would you give us the gift of your word, the gift of your presence, the gift of our eyes opening to see you. We ask this in your name, amen. Well, here's the thing. We spend, I think there's 13 or 14 Tuesday or Thursday nights every summer at these orientation fairs in Ramsey. A lot of you were in those fairs, and we met you there. 
Or maybe you're a senior and you met RUF or you found out about this place at one of those orientation fairs at Ramsey. And you know the drill. It's at the end of the day, people are kind of tired and they make you do this last thing where you got to go around all these tables and talk to them about stuff. So uh, just kind of making small talk at these tables, a lot of times the conversation comes up, you know, are you interested in the ministry? Yeah, well, what, what kind of things are you interested in? What are you into? And the refrain you hear from almost everybody is, I just want to find Christian community. I want to find a place like a solid group of people or community of friends. And I'm a fan of that. I mean, I want that too. Who's opposed to that? But here's the thing. There's a little bit of a snag in that desire that catches us up sooner or later. And here's what I think it is. Community is one of those things you can't just you can't just get it directly. You can't say, I want community and just get it. Community is something that happens around something else. Like a bunch of rock climbers have community in that. A bunch of bulldog fans have community in that. There has to be an object of your community. You can't just have it. Like C.S. Lewis talked in The Four Loves about friendship. He said friendship's kind of the same thing about community. You can't just walk up to a person and say, I want to be friends. That will guarantee you won't have a friendship. <laughs> or I want to have a friendship with you. You have to have a friendship about something. He says this. We talk about it pretty frequently here. Friendship must be about something, even if it's only about enthusiasm for dominoes or white mice. Those who have nothing can share nothing. Those who are going nowhere can have no fellow travelers on the journey. Friendship arises out of mere companionship when two or more of the companions discover that they have in common some insight or interest or even taste which the others don't share, and which till that moment each person believed to be her own unique treasure or burden. The typical expression of opening friendship would sound something like this. What? You too? I thought I was the only one. It is then that friendship is born, and instantly those two people stand together in immense solitude. He's using similar words we are. He's saying that's the moment that community is born too. In that moment, that you too moment, I thought I was the only one. There's someone else out there whose world is like mine. We share this deep kindred spirit. That's the birth moment of friendship and community. And he says immediately you have deep solitude or solidarity with that person. You're immediately bound up with them. That's what... Christian community is like. You can't just say, I want it, and I'm going to get it. It's the fruit of something else. It's the fruit of another pursuit. It's, it's the fruit of some bigger pursuit. So I think, like, we should re-engineer how we do tabling and how we do these orientation fairs, because when people say, I just want to find a good community, or I want to find Christian community, maybe the more helpful response is, don't look for community. Look for a group of people who are on a really big, beautiful, larger-than-life mission. Look for people who have been so released from themselves and their own agendas because they're about something so much bigger than themselves. And if you become about that mission, too, you'll have community. We're all moving in the same direction. We're all standing shoulder-to-shoulder, shoulder, looking at the same point, saying, you too? And it could be, these, these you too things could be anywhere from you're searching too? You're confused too? You thought you were at one place with God, but it turns out you don't know where you are with him? You too? I thought I was the only one. Or it could be 
he's kind of stirring up your insides now. He's bringing some conviction of sin. You're starting to realize I'm not a great person. I might need someone who's a friend of not great people. You too. Or it could be another Christian. They can finish your sentences because God has interrupted the tragedy of their life too. No longer is their life on a dead end or in a cul-de-sac going in endless circles. But he's put them on an interstate and he's taken them somewhere and he's renewing them and he's using them in the world. Don't look for community. Look for people on mission. Then you'll have community too. That's what's going on in these early chapters in Acts. These people are devoted to one another because they're devoted to Jesus and the story of what he's doing in the world, who he is. And so they're devoted to each other and they're devoted to this greater cause and person the way not out of like, I need to be more devoted, I need to be more dutiful. The way that a north end of a magnet's attracted and devoted to the south end of a magnet. It's this larger than life power and force that's holding them together. You can't see it, but they're not leaving each other. They are bound into each other, magnetically stuck to each other. And that's what we've been talking about really for the past three or four weeks now, that the power of the Spirit unleashed in the church, which is another word for Christian community, binds us together because he's bound us to Jesus in a much bigger mission. This is pretty different than how we typically think about community. So this is, this is an x-ray of Ben Coppage and the way he thinks about community, and I'm suspicious as an x-ray of you as well. So this isn't me telling you what's wrong with you. This is, I think, what's wrong with us. We are prone to walk into rooms um, with individual needs and agendas that we look to the group to meet. So we all walk into this room, and we're prone to do it tonight with our individual desires, needs, wishes, and we look to the group or the ministry or the church or the friend group to meet those individual agendas and needs. And the problem is, at some point, someone's not going to meet one of your needs, and you're going to get upset, and you're going to go somewhere else, and you're going to walk into that room with your individual needs and agendas, and you're going to have a subtle demand, an unspoken demand that this group expend its resources to meet your agendas and your needs. There's a saying we like to say here that RUF is for you but never about you. And I think that fits for the church as well. The church of Jesus Christ is always ever for you. It is never ever about you. And it is never ever about those fleeting needs and desires and checkboxes getting checked off. Always for you. Always with you. Never about you. And the same here. When we, get all, when we come into these rooms, and especially communities of human beings, people, and we come in with these agendas, these desires, which could be whatever, like, I want you to see me, I want you to want me, I want you to invite me, I want you to include me, whatever. You know it because it's in my heart too. When you import this into the group, everybody else now gets judged on how well they're checking your boxes off. Did that girl notice me or ignore me? Did this person invite me or forget about me? or just overlook me. So we end up devouring each other, and this is exactly what we talked about last week with Acts 5. It's not what Chandler read tonight, but Ananias and Sapphira. There's this existential threat in the life of the early church, and it's, it's this hypocrisy that is driven by a man and a woman, a husband and a wife, who were animated and driven by an individual, tiny, itty-bitty little mission. And that mission was rich community with no cost. That mission was faux Christianity, F-A-U-X, fake Christianity. 
They wanted the social capital, the credit, the social standing that would come from appearing generous, from appearing like they're on this huge mission with everybody else. They were trying to, they were mimicking what they were seeing around them. Everyone else was selling stuff, not because they were told to, because they wanted to. They were giving possessions away to help the Christians in their churches who were in need. So Ananias and Sapphira are like, well, we probably should get on board with this thing too. But they were dead on the inside. Nothing was happening. They weren't alive to God. They weren't about this bigger mission. They were still fundamentally all about themselves. And so what they did is they made a fake donation. They kept most of the proceeds for themselves and took the rest of the apostles and said, here's all the money we made in our house. And the, and the spirit, like a good father, protects his young infant church from that existential threat, from that poison. And Ananias and Sapphira die in judgment. But they are a picture of what it looks like to be driven by these individual agendas. When we do this, when we come into the room with individual agendas, with individual little missions, we become resource rich and fellowship poor. Resource rich because you probably are going to get the things you're wanting. There's a lot of ministries, there's a lot of people in Athens, there's a lot of friend groups, there's a lot of churches. You can search long enough to find a place that checks most of your boxes. And what happens is you might get what you want, which is really dangerous. There might be a place that never challenges you, but tells you what you want to hear. Conveniently, it always aligns with what you already believe. It might be people who you found your crew. They see you, they notice you, they include you. You have a role in leadership of some sort or another. You, you become resource rich, you get all this stuff, but fellowship poor because you are fundamentally competing with everybody else in the room for scarce resources, right? What happens if everybody's about these tiny little individual agendas? What happens if a church, all 500 people, are really just there to kind of take a pound of flesh from you, to get something out of you? What if everybody is here to get boxes checked and to walk right out the door again? What happens to everybody else in the room? Fellowship, poor. We don't know each other. You don't know me and I don't know you and I kind of don't want to know you and you kind of don't want to know me. It would get in the way of what you're trying to get. So this is the toxin of how we often kind of in a default way walk into the room with these expectations. But what happens when the spirit of Jesus, who is a recreating spirit, a resurrecting spirit, a renewing and reconciling spirit, what happens when he shows up and he just breathes life into a community and makes people alive and binds them together? What happens then? We come into the room, we tend to approach each other with a group goal, and we look to individuals in the group to meet that goal, or we ourselves spend our resources to meet that group goal. It's flipped. It's the opposite of what I said earlier. We walk in with individual goals, we look to the group to fulfill our needs. When the Spirit works in your life and begins to renew you and transform you, your life really becomes about the group, the communal goal. We are on this mission together. We are on this journey together of what God is doing in us and in the world. And you begin having a, a less and less tight grip on your resources. Again, we talked about this last week. Your car becomes a tool to bless your neighbor. Your money becomes a tool, a really powerful tool you can, you can give $50 to this person or $10 or one day when you're making a lot of money, $10,000 to someone and it can change reality for them. Your attention tonight 
is a powerful tool. Even if it's your first night here, guess what? Nobody else knows that. <laughs> you can say hi to somebody too, and you can change the night for them. When your life begins to become about the group, the communal goal, every individual in that is sucked up into it and begins to look at my life and say, what do I have that I can spend or give away to bless my brothers and my sisters in this group? Now, what happens when this happens? We become fellowship rich and a little more resource poor, right? Because you get less money when you give $50 to somebody. You have less time when you stick around a little bit later because you think someone here probably needs your time and you don't get that back. So you're a little bit more resource poor, but fellowship rich because the kind of stuff that's happening in the early church begins to happen here. And it begins to happen everywhere you go. It's the wake that you leave behind you. And this is what we see happening in Acts chapter four. People are for the sake of having liquid cash, like uh, cash that's able to be spent quickly, they're liquidating resources. It's hard to turn a house into something that can be helpful to you, so people are selling extra houses, selling land, so that they are available for your needs if some of your needs should arise and they can meet them. People are giving away resources, they're giving time, they're giving their attention to one another. And then in Acts 6, we're gonna talk about this in a few minutes, but I'm gonna mention it here, you see this the people in the early church who had the power, and I don't mean in a corrupt, power-hungry way, I mean they were just the decision-makers early, early on. The Hebrew Jews, the Jews that kind of grew up in Jerusalem, Jewish to the core, now they were Christians. They were the ones that just kind of happened to be the ones who were calling the shots on how all this money got dispersed, how all this food got dispersed. And the Greek Christians who were kind of grew up in Greco-Roman culture, very different culture, but we're Christians now. They came to them and said, hey, like, what's up? Our widows never get food. And it's probably something where they were just being overlooked. But you see the response of the, of the apostles and the early Christians was not one of, I mean, I hear a conflict, I hear a complaint, and I'm like, guns up, shots fired, I'm not even listening to you anymore, I'm thinking of what I need to say to rebut your complaint and to show you this is actually your problem, not my problem. Or to say, we'll look into this. I'll have a committee look into this and we'll get back to you. It's amazing how they respond. They come to them with this complaint and, and they get together, they talk about it and they don't dictate what the response is gonna be. Well, we hereby declare that you seven people are gonna be the new little you know, leaders of the, of, the, of the widow feeding ministry. They gather everyone together and they say, this seems the best way forward for us, why don't you who have accidentally been overlooked, why don't you pick from among yourselves seven spirit-filled, hear the bigger agenda, the bigger mission? Pick seven spirit-filled people among you and y'all make the decisions, both for you and for us. You take care of our widows just like yours. That way it's guaranteed your widows won't get overlooked. You're like, what planet is this from? This is not how selfish people relate to each other. This is resurrection life. This is new humanity. This is what Jesus is doing in the world. He's not just about forgiving people. He's about recreating every last fiber of your being and the world. And these are pictures of this new humanity pretty early on out of the gates. 
I know you know all of this because you're like me. You love being at the game. You love being about something bigger than yourself, shoulder to shoulder with your buddies. You love war movies like Band of Brothers and things like that. You're like, I gotta be careful there's not a recruiting station near me after I see those movies. I'm so drawn into them, that camaraderie, that band of brothers, band of sisters, all the people on one mission together, and they're as, as, as thick as family because of this. This is why coming home from a mission trip is always so depressing. Everybody, it's such a downer. Everybody's like, and back to our own lives, back to our own agendas now, back to our own kind of little missions and stuff. It was so great while we were there together, all doing the same thing. Friends, these bigger missions eclipse all the other little silly missions that we find ourselves getting wrapped up in. A little bit of my story, some of you know this, but my years here, when I turned 21, downtown became a beautiful thing for me in a beautiful place, and so my nights began a lot of nights around 11 or 11.30 and ended around 3.30 or so. And you know what, in retro, I think I knew it at the time too, I shouldn't say retrospect, I knew full well it was never about getting drunk downtown. It was always about the mission. It was always about camaraderie. It was always about the morning after sitting there and telling war stories of what went down that night. Some of us, the reason you're sitting in a small group on a Tuesday faking your prayer update of what you're struggling with and downtown partying on a Saturday or smoking joints on a Friday is because you have totally lost sight of a bigger mission than yourself and you're blind and you've, you've settled for this itty bitty little mission. What benefit, how has it ever benefited another human being? These little missions that we get all wrapped up in. How have you ever helped somebody? Whose life is better? Whose thoughts are a little less tangled up? But we do it because it's faux community. It's a faux mission, it's a fake mission. It's really appealing to get together with your girls, your guys, and go do something big, larger than life together, and then debrief it the next day, and then do it all over again the next week. But it takes your life away. You know it's a tiny mission, I know you do. Nobody continues to do this when they leave college. You get fired from jobs when you leave college and still do this. You have marriage trouble when you leave college and do this. Everybody knows it's a fake mission, but here, it's kind of like the inside joke. We all agree to suspend belief and say, whatever. Friends, I, I say this to you as friends and a fellow struggler. If this describes you, the reason why is you have lost sight. Somehow you have lost sight and excitement about a mission bigger than you and your fleeting excitements, whatever makes you feel better on a Thursday night. Jesus is depicting here in his new humanity something so much gloriously bigger and more beautiful than yourself, something that actually brings life back to the world instead of draining it away. Something that leaves you closer with God after that than further away and harder and harder and harder in your heart. The other thing is this. I mean, that's an obvious thing. A lot of you are hearing this and you're like, well, check, that's not me. But there's another way that we can kind of smuggle this stuff in and, and settle for these smaller missions. And I think one that's prevalent in our community and our Christian communities is the project of self, the never-ending project of self, right? This never-ending road of self-improvement. Every Bible study we sit in, every sermon you hear, every conference you go to, every note you take in your journal is all about how does this get me a little further down the road? And look, none of this stuff I'm describing is inherently bad. 
But do you see how sin warps it and makes it all about me, all about you? This never-ending project of self makes this a room full of 250 lonely individuals who are so preoccupied with their own advancement in the Christian life, they don't have time for you. They don't see you. And this is what we must be safe from. This is what, this is, why do you need the spirit of the resurrected Jesus unleashed and invading your life? Because this is what we're like apart from him. You see why he has to not just help us, he has to reanimate us, he has to recreate us for us to move in these directions. Well, we spent a good bit of time on that first point, what fellowship looks like, where it comes from, but what's so contagious about Christian community? There's a lot of verses in here we haven't even touched yet that talk about what the outsiders and all the other people around them in Jerusalem, around this community that was caught up, magnetically drawn to something so much bigger than themselves. They were actually cutting edge, excited that God really did keep his promise to make everything new and good again. And they knew they were a part of it. It got them out of bed in the morning and it kept them up late at night. That was contagious. Luke records all these details. Chapter two, verse 47. These disciples, these, this early church had favor with all the people. Chapter five, verse 12. Many great signs and wonders were done among the people. Not being sequestered from them, not in an own little private room, but among the people. And it was the people who were bringing their sick, their diseased, their lame to the disciples. Chapter five, verse 13. The people held them in high esteem. Hundreds were added, thousands were added to their group, day by day, Luke says, which is to say this. One way you know the Spirit is present in a church, in a group, is that the beneficiaries of that group aren't just the people in those four walls. There is this exponential ripple effect outside these four walls to the extent, this, to the, extent the Spirit of Jesus is unleashed in this place and we're yielded to his agenda his desires. We would expect that UGA will be better off if he's at work in this room and all the other ministries and all the other churches. We would expect that because that's what happened here. Jerusalem was better off. Word about these disciples had spread throughout all the towns. This is miles and miles away. Now remember, these were people who had already poo-pooed this Jesus him being the Messiah, and now they're hearing, not only are people saying he's resurrected, but his followers are like shooting off like rockets, like they're like walking on clouds, crazy stuff is happening, marks of renewal, sicknesses being reversed, death being reversed, isolation and alienation and racial tension being reversed, and people are like, it, it's like the world is in rewind all of a sudden, and the effects of the fall, the, the horrible effects of the fall are being rolled back through these ordinary people. And it's contagious. And it's spreading out through all of these different people. So why is Christian community so contagious? This is a really important point. And this is one of, probably one of your big takeaways from tonight of what do I do with this message tonight. Why is Christian community so contagious? I think one of the biggest reasons it's so contagious is that there is an massive, always propped open door into Christian community. What is it? The word 
of God. This is the doorway in to true, genuine, bona fide community. This is the doorway into the mission I've been talking about. This is the doorway into knowing who God is and what exactly he is like and how exactly he says he'll respond to you. And this has power. This has power. Did you pick that up? It's one of the refrains that Luke says repeatedly throughout this passage. The word, he doesn't say the Christian community grew, he said the word of God advanced. The word grew. We talked last week about what were all these people obsessed with? What were they fixated on? The apostles' teaching, the gospel. What did the apostles go to Solomon's portico every day by the temple teaching and preaching? The gospel. Opening the door. Saying to both the religious and the unreligious, the Roman, the Greek, the Jew, the barbarian, the Syrian, whoever, the Ethiopian, God has come for you. He is calling you home. That's why it's so contagious. God is actively pushing his church out into the world with a giant open door. And every time we talk about his word and actually get it right, what his word is about is the good news that he has come to do the work for you. That's why so many people come in. That's why this is so contagious. There is a larger than life power to it as the spirit works through his word. Luke keeps calling this great, great power. The word of God continues to increase. Martin Luther was the guy through whom God changed the world. The Protestant Reformation, um, even like Time Magazine, whatever magazine you want to look at, when they rank the top 10 historical events in in recorded human history, the Protestant Reformation is always top three or four. Martin Luther's the guy that God used to tip the first domino against, at the time, what was a very corrupt abusive Catholic church, spiritually abusive too. You have to pay to get to heaven. You have to spend years and years in purgatory to work off your sins so that God will be happy with you and let you in heaven. Horrible stuff that's not in the Bible. Martin Luther said this, how did he change Europe and the whole world? He said, I will preach the word, I will teach it, I will write it, but I will constrain no one by force, for faith must come freely without compulsion. Take myself as an example. I, impo- I opposed indulgences in all the papists, the, the supporters of the Pope at the time, but never with force. I simply taught. I simply preached. I wrote God's word. Otherwise, I didn't do anything. And while I slept or drank Wittenberg beer with my friends Philip and Amsdorf, the word so greatly weakened the papacy that no prince or emperor ever inflicted such losses upon it. I did nothing. The word did everything. God's word came from God's mouth. That's why it has authority, and that's why it has power. His word has every ounce of power that he himself has. It is a word of resurrecting life. It is a word of truth. It is a word that cuts through all the mess and the muck and the confusion and lands a blow exactly how he intends every time. Isaiah and Paul both said, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach good news. This gospel how beautiful are the feet. This has been on my mind before this sermon. It's been on my mind the past week, and I've been praying that our feet would be beautiful, that Athens would say, how beautiful are the feet of those community group leaders or these people in this church, this ministry. They brought me good news that lifted burdens, 
that let me finally see what God is actually like, how good he is. And they bless your feet because your feet walked to their doorstep and said, do you know what he's like? Do you know what he's done? How beautiful are the feet of those who walk with their own two little weak legs this gospel to your ear. The word is powerful. That's why this is so contagious. And it gives, you know, this whole debate about the, the, the Greek Jews coming to the Hebrew Jews and saying, hey, what's up with this? And they, they're talking about all this stuff about, well, we don't have time to kind of both preach the word and serve tables. You're wondering, like, what's up with this whole, uh, whole thing going on in Luke 6? The connection between acts of service and mercy, feeding the widows or whatever else it is, giving people rides or noticing the lonely person or whatever, having all of the sophomores over to your house because you know sophomore year is hard because you're not getting together as much anymore. Whatever the act of mercy is, what it does is it lends credibility to the word of God. When people see Christians being Christians, it is so much easier for them to believe the Bible, to believe the word of God and take it on its terms. When Christians hide their light, diminish their saltiness, delude their witness, dilute their witness, the world has, says nothing to see here. But our acts of service, our acts of mercy, not just among ourselves, but among those around us, seeing people, noticing them, anticipating their needs, lends credibility to the church that this is real, that this is real. In a different way for the apostles, I have, as of yet, never healed anybody, never resurrected anybody. The apostles are unique. They, they're not just preaching the gospel, they're literally writing the gospel. There's something unique about these people. So raising dead people, or a shadow healing a sick person, or whatever miracles they were doing were authenticating and validating and saying, you don't believe this guy, you think he's crazy? Then how did that dead person just raise up? And God is saying there's something new happening in my world. Genesis 1 is happening all over again, except this time in an indestructible way. Nicholas Kristof is a writer for the New York Times. He's not a believer, and he writes this. How, do the, how does Christians' works of service and mercy lend credibility to this? He says, in polarized times, few words conjure up as much distaste in liberal circles as evangelical Christian. Yet that casual dismissal is profoundly unfair of the movement as a whole. Go to the front lines at home or abroad in the battles against hunger, malaria, prison rape, human trafficking, or genocide, and some of the bravest people you'll meet are evangelical Christians or conservative Catholics who truly live their faith. I'm not particularly religious myself, but I stand in awe of those I've seen risking their lives in this way. And it sickens me to see that faith mocked at New York cocktail parties. He doesn't buy any of the stuff I've been telling you tonight, but he sees a resurrection community, and he sees all these little kind of speckles of resurrection life splattering on the people around them, and it's got his attention. Our last section is brief, complaints in Christian community. We've set ourselves up well because we've already talked about, imagine the turmoil if all of us come into the room with your set of checkboxes, and you look to me, or your pastor, or your friends, or someone else in this ministry to meet and check off all your boxes. We see, we've already seen the destructive force of individual agendas that will not yield to the bigger agenda. So what do we do with these complaints? 
Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, the person who loves their dream of a community more than the Christian community itself destroys Christian community, even though their personal intentions may be ever so honest and sacrificial. He's saying, be wary. Be wary of what you do with grumbling and your complaints. We've already talked about what the source of their grumbling was. They were just, they were put out of joint a little bit. They're like, why is this? I don't think it was some super big fight, but it's the same word that the Bible uses of the Israelites in the desert. They were grumbling. They were complaining. They were getting sideways with these other Christians. And what's amazing is how they dealt with this. They saw each other as people, as brothers and as sisters, not as Greeks or Jews, not as legit Christians and subpar Christians, not as labels, they saw each other. And a little burst of kind of this new humanity popped up yet again. And what could have divided the early church, we joke about denominations, it could have been a month after Jesus ascends to heaven and there's two denominations. Why? Because they were pissed about how they did mercy ministry. But the spirit is present. They had complaints. Luke's not being idealistic. You will have complaints in Christian community because the room is filled with people like you and like me. But what do you do with those complaints? Do they eat away at you like acid and thereby eat away at your pocket of this community? Or do you see the people you have issues with as people? I want to end with a story from Frederick Buechner. He's talking about faces, the importance of faces. He says, faces, like everything else, can be looked at and not seen. Walking down a sidewalk at rush hour or attending a World Series, you're surrounded by thousands of them, but they might as well be balloons at a political rally. Here and there, one of them may catch your eye for a moment, but in another moment, you've forgotten it. They're without personalities, without histories. There's nothing to remember them by. They're anonymous strangers. As far as you're concerned, they simply don't matter. They're too much to take in. But the odds are for at least one person somewhere in the world, each of them, even the unlikeliest, matters enormously or mattered enormously in the past. And with any luck, many of them will come to matter. The pimply little boy with the beginnings of a mustache, the overweight person eating popcorn, the man with no upper teeth, the suntanned blonde with a disagreeable mouth. If you set your mind to it, there's hardly one of them you can't imagine somebody loving even conceivably yourself. If the overweight person were your kid's sister, for instance, or the pimply boy to grow up, grew up to be your father, or the toothless man was the love of your life, each face you see has or used to have or may have yet the power out of all the other faces in creation to make at least some, one other person's heart skip a beat just by coming across it in an old photo album or maybe appearing unexpectedly at the front door. This is how beautiful Christian community is. Jesus puts names on the people sitting in the chairs next to you, and he puts stories back on them. So you get, we get to see each other as people who are loved and worthy of love by God, by each other, and we get to know each other, and when we get sideways with each other, we get to come back to each other and say, hey, this is a person, this is my sister, this is my brother. What do we do going forward? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, 
oh boy, we need the gospel, not just to change us one time in the past or change us once for all, but we need you every day to bring this good news back to our doorstep. We need your help. We need help to repent of the ways your word tonight has brought conviction to us. We need your help to change. We need your help to love. We need your help to see our brothers and sisters as our brothers and sisters, shoulder to shoulder on your mission. Please unleash your power among us. We pray in your name, amen.